0: If you have a Bible, go and meet me in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. We're going to look at verses 19 down to verse 28 here in John chapter 1. You know, as people who live in America, as Americans, we enjoy our freedom, don't we? There's any number of kinds of freedoms that maybe we enjoy uh, political freedom, we enjoy financial freedom, right? We, we seek financial freedom that if we can get out of debt and stay out of debt, that we can spend our money the way that we want to. There's, there's any number of freedoms that we look for and that we look to and that we enjoy. And I don't think any of those freedoms are bad. In fact, I'm, I'm grateful that we get to enjoy those freedoms. But we've got to be careful that we don't make those freedoms uh, our ultimate soy, source of joy. Our, our ultimate source of satisfaction. Now, there, there's a greater freedom, isn't there? When we read the scriptures, we, we see the, the writers of scripture, we, we see the Holy Spirit talking about this freedom. In fact, this is why later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Right? That's where real freedom is found. This morning, this passage that we're looking at here in John chapter 1, we're going to see that, that there is a way to freedom that might seem different. There's a way to freedom that, that runs a little countercultural, but we're going to look at the testimony of one of the ones who, in the scripture, maybe is the most free in life. We're going to look at this testimony of John the Baptist, and we're going to see, one, that the hero of the Baptist story is not John the Baptist, it's Jesus. But then what we're also going to see is, well, how do you get that freedom? How do you experience that kind of freedom? And so, as we look at this passage here in John 1, what we see is that there is freedom and understanding who you are and who Jesus is. There's freedom in understanding who you are and who Jesus is. And we see here in this passage what that looks like. So look with me at John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. We'll we'll read down to verse 28. Let me want you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. The prophet Isaiah tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is his word. Starting in verse 19, we read this, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, "Who are you?" he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" He said, "I'm not. Are you the prophet?" And he answered, "No." So they said to him, "Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself?" He said, "I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness." Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your grace. And, Father, we pray this morning as we come to study your word Lord, that you would meet us with your grace. God, that you would conform us into the image of Jesus. You would help us to love you. We would help us to follow you. And you would help us to worship you in all that we do. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's freedom in understanding who you are and who Jesus is. and. We see in this passage a few ways that we, we find this freedom, a few ways that we understand these things. And uh, the first way is this, is that we've got to recognize who you aren't. Recognize who you aren't or who you are not. Now, this is not typical self-help advice. If you were to jump on to Amazon and look at the bestsellers in the self-help section, it would not say, remember who you are not. Instead, it would say, no, uh, find out who you are. Right, live who you are, live your truth, whatever that may be. But here, what we see, and we don't just see it here, we see it throughout the scriptures, that we've got to understand who we are not. In verse 19, John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel, not John the Baptist, he's writing about John the Baptist, but he's not John the Baptist. He says this, and this is the testimony of John, talking about the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So this is the testimony of John the Baptist. This is John confirming facts on the basis of personal knowledge. He's not saying that the personal experience is the, the basis for why you should believe this, but what he's saying is I saw this with my own eyes. I, I've experienced this. This is, this is why you should believe. This is why you should understand what I'm saying. Hey, John the Baptist, he's He's sharing what he knows to be true because he's experienced it. This is how he answers that question, who are you? Who are you, John? Why are you doing what you are doing? It's important to see who it is that's asking this question. If you look there at verse 19, it says, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. So the Jews, whoever they are, they've sent these priests and Levites, and they've sent them from Jerusalem it's interesting that they would send them from Jerusalem or that John puts that little bit of information in this narration. Because if you jump down to the end of the passage, look at verse 28. It says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now from Bethany to Jerusalem is about 25 miles. Today, it would take you about 45 minutes to drive from Bethany to Jerusalem. And there's about a 3,000 foot change in elevation. So what that means is that John, he's baptizing in Bethany, but what's happening is he's creating such a stir that word is getting all the way back to Jerusalem, all the way back to the temple, all the way back to this group of Jews that he talks about here, that, that something's happening with this guy named John the Baptist. Now there's, there's plenty of reason to be interested in John the Baptist aside from his baptism. We know that John the Baptist, he wasn't like your typical first century Jew. He he didn't wear a a typical wardrobe. Instead, he wore clothes made from camel's hair. Probably had a bushy beard. He ate locusts and wild honey. Be like someone coming in eating grasshoppers as their favorite food. That's John, right? By all outward appearances, this is a different dude, right? This is a different guy. And yet, people are flocking to him. People are coming and they're being baptized in the Jordan. And so word gets back to Jerusalem. They they want to know what's going on. And so it tells us here that the Jews sent priests and Levites. Now that phrase, the Jews, that's an important phrase in John's writings. In fact, it shows up almost 70 times in his writings. And almost every time it shows up, he's not talking about the Jews as the people or the Jews as the crowd, or the the Jews as the mass. Instead, he's talking about the Jews as the religious leaders that would soon become hostile to Jesus Christ, that that would soon operate in opposition to Christ. But here, they're they're not hostile yet. Instead, they're curious. So they send the priest and the Levites to come and figure out who is this John the Baptist and what he's doing. So who are these priests and Levites? These are two groups that would serve in the temple. They had different functions, but kind of broadly speaking, one group, the priests, they, they kind of handled the music. They, they handled the music in the temple. And then the Levites, among other things, they operated as the kind of temple police. They made sure that the temple was secure. They made sure that everything was happening the way that it was supposed to be happening. So then it would make sense that the Levites would be the ones who were sent to investigate what is John doing? What is, what is this guy dressed in camel hair? What is he doing and why is he doing it? And so they come to John the Baptist and they've got a few ideas about who he could be. They think, well, this is either the Messiah, this is Elijah, or this is the prophet. And so if you, you look here, verse, then to verse 19, they say, who are you? Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. That's an awkward construction. It's an awkward translation. And it's awkward because it's awkward in Greek as well. What what John is trying to show us is that John the Baptist emphatically denies everything that they are about to ask him. He emphatically denies everything that they are about to charge him with. So in verse 20, who are you? Verse 20, he says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So these priests and Levites, they come and uh, apparently was left out. They ask him, are you the Messiah? That's what Christ means, we're talking about Jesus Christ, right? We know Christ is not his last name, it's a title that means anointed one. It comes from a Hebrew word that, that means the Messiah. So they come to John and they say, hey, are you the Messiah? They, they were looking for the Messiah, but they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. They, they were looking for a Messiah who would deliver them politically, who would rescue them from the oppressive Romans. John says, oh, I, I am not the Christ. They say, all right, well, maybe you're Elijah. It would make sense that they would think that he was Elijah. Malachi 4.5 says this, that behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He says, I'm gonna send Elijah. This is a prophecy from the Lord that he's going to send Elijah before the Messiah comes. Now, why Elijah? Well, if you go to 2 Kings You'll read where Elijah doesn't die, but instead he's caught up in a chariot of fire and he's taken to be with the Lord. And what's interesting is here, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. But in just a few chapters, we'll see Jesus say, John the Baptist is Elijah. So is John wrong? What's happening here? No, he's saying, look, I am not Elijah. I am John the Baptist, right? Right? From time to time, people will say, man, you kind of look like Tim Tebow. I mean, I'm not Tim Tebow, right? I'm, I'm Ethan the Crowder, right? That's, that's who I am. Uh, that was a joke. No one has ever mistaken me for Tim Tebow. Did I have someone this week tell me I looked like Triple H, the wrestler? Uh, so the steroids are working, I guess. I don't know. Um, he says, no, I, I'm not Elijah. I am John the Baptist. When Jesus says that he's Elijah, he says he comes as one in the spirit of Elijah, And so then they ask another question. These are all legitimate questions. They say, well, then are you the prophet? And notice they don't say, are you a prophet? They say, are you the prophet? Back in the ESV, they capitalized the P. Are you the prophet? That definite article, are you the one? Well, who is this prophet? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, 18 Moses, Moses is quoting the Lord. He says, I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. John says, no, I'm not any of those. In fact, it's interesting the way he answers these questions. Look at verse 20. He says, I am not the Christ. Then, Verse 21, they say, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Then they say, are you the prophet? And he says, no. You see how his answer gets shorter with each question. It's almost like he's getting frustrated. Right, I'm not the Christ, I'm not, no, I'm not anyone. Right, that's not me. If you've had small kids, maybe you've been like this, like you start with a long answer and then by the end of it, it's no, right? No, why, because I said so, right? Because I'm daddy, I said so. But John, he's getting frustrated here. He says, look, I'm not any of those. I'm just doing what I've been called to do. Now, it makes sense that they would ask these questions They would be anticipating this because it wasn't uncommon for people in this day to stand up and claim to be somebody. I love Acts chapter 5, verse 36. It says this. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. There's a warning. If you think you are somebody, right? Acts chapter 5. Verse 36, it wasn't uncommon for people to rise up in that day and claim to be somebody. Claim to be somebody important, claim to be somebody who people needed to listen to. It wasn't uncommon for people claim to be big shots. Maybe, maybe you've experienced this before, right? And it's not even something theological, but right, people, you just know some people who they think they are somebody. I heard a pastor say one time, I know some guys who they can strut sitting down. Right, they, they think they're big shots. And he said, a big shot's just a little squirt and elevator shoes. Right? That's, that's all a big shot is. But these people are claiming to be somebody. And so the, the priests and Levites, they come to John the Baptist and see, who is he claiming to be? I, is this the Messiah? Is this Elijah? Is this the prophet? To But he says no. Now, it would have been easy for John to hijack his role. It would have been easy for John to say, maybe I'm not the Messiah, but I am Elijah, or I am the prophet, or yeah, you you should listen to me. Yeah, you should follow me, but that's not what he does. See, I, I think that the two most free people in the scriptures are Paul and John the Baptist. What do I mean when I say the most free? Well, Paul was free enough that he could say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I die, I get to be with Jesus. If I live, I'm gonna convert the prisoners and all of your guards as well. John the Baptist, he wears camel hair and eats grasshoppers and doesn't think anything about it. In fact, later we'll see he didn't do that. He goes to Herod. He goes to the most powerful man in the region and says, you have sinned against a holy God. Do with me what you will. Where does that freedom come from? It's because John didn't have to try to be somebody he wasn't. This is always a temptation for people, to try to be somebody we aren't. Growing up, I played YBA, the Youth Basketball Association in our community, and you might look at me and think, Ethan, you don't look like a basketball player. I didn't know that, right? Uh, and so I have in my mind, right, I'm the next Michael Jordan. And then I hit fifth grade and just stopped growing. Right? Quit growing up, I just started growing out. It was weird. And finally, I remember my basketball coach telling me, hey, you need to sleep upside down to try to get taller, or maybe basketball isn't your sport. And suddenly me there was freedom that, man, I can just go shoot around. Who cares if I make it? I'm not any good anyway. There's freedom here. when we stop trying to be someone that we aren't or stop trying to live in a role that isn't ours. And this is, we know this to be generally true when it comes to life. Like I'm never gonna be a basketball player or whatever it may be. But there's a there's a broader theological truth here that we need to understand. See, there's there's two temptations when it comes to this that sometimes we give into explicitly, but more often than not, we give into implicitly. The first one is this: is that we believe that we we aren't the savior for anyone else, but we're the savior for ourselves. I think we've got to do enough for God to love us. We, we've got to do enough for God to want to save us, and that's just not true. Jesus Christ has done everything that we need to be saved. But there's another one that's maybe a little little more deceptive or, or a little more insidious, and it's this. We think that God has saved us, but now we need to save them. Right now, it's on me to save my son or my daughter, my my brother or my sister, my neighbor or my co-worker. That we we just feel this this burden and I think a burden for lost people is good. In fact if you don't have a burden for lost people, you're not following Jesus. My grandfather used to tell me, I would leave their house, he would say, remember, if you ain't fishing, you ain't following. We should have a burden for lost people, but what we also need to remember is that Jesus is mighty to save. Not, not you, not me, Jesus saves. And for some of us, we need to be reminded of that today because maybe we've been sharing the gospel, we've been praying for someone, or, and it just feels like they're never gonna get saved. And man, if we just could say the right thing or if we had the right answer, or if we had the gotcha statement, but we don't need any of that. What we need is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and he saves Right, that he does the work. John the Baptist recognized who he was not. He was not the Savior. I'll tell you this, if John the Baptist wasn't the Savior, neither are you, right? Neither am I. So if we want to have this freedom, we've got to know who we aren't, but then second, we've got to realize who you are. you to know, recognize who you aren't and realize who you are. When, when you know who you are, You lose the pressure of needing or wanting to be anything else. Look at verse 22. The priests and Levites, they're speaking, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John the Baptist isn't any of these other people, then who is he? They, They need an answer. So in verse 23, he answers the question. He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, just as the prophet Isaiah said. Do you notice in verse 23, John the Baptist here, he doesn't see himself as insignificant. He he doesn't see himself as unimportant, but he understands the part that he's playing. He, He sees himself as fulfilling prophecy, just not the ones that they think. He quotes here from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. He says, he's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. What does it mean to make straight the way of the Lord? Well, in the ancient world, when a dignitary or a military leader or someone powerful, when, when word would get to the village or to the city that they were coming, well, what they would do in that city or that village is they would begin to go out and literally make straight the path, make straight the way of the one who was coming. So they would go through and they would, they would knock down maybe where, where things had grown up. They would, they would try to straighten out the path or smooth it out. And, and John the Baptist, he says, that's what I have come to do. That's what I've been sent to do. I've been sent to make straight the path of the Lord, to make straight the path of the Messiah. But what he means here is not that he's going out and knocking down trees or, or making a, a path smooth. And said, the way he prepares the way of the Lord is he preaches this message of repentance and judgment that prepared for the Lord, prepared for the Messiah to come to his people. He's telling the Jews that the Messiah is coming, and you need to get ready. You need to cleanse yourself, you need to turn from your sin and all unrighteousness, and you need to be prepared for when Jesus makes his appearance. See, everything about John the Baptist was influenced and was shaped by who he understood Jesus to be. John understood who he was. He wasn't the one that people were looking to or looking for, but he was the one preparing the way. You might say it like this, that he was just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody and that somebody was Jesus, right? That he wasn't the man, but he knows the man. He wasn't the guy, but he knows the guy. And like John the Baptist, we've got to realize that everything about who we are and what we do has to be understood in relation to what God has said about us, in relation to who Jesus is and and what he is doing. One of the reformers, he put it this way. He said, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. In other words, we cannot know ourselves truly until and unless we know God rightly. So if you want to know who you are, you don't begin with yourself, you begin with God. Because if you begin with God, then what that means is you are not God. You are not sovereign, right? You are not the center of the universe, Every morning, I need to wake up, look in the mirror, and say, you are not the center of the universe. Because we love to put ourselves there, don't we? I can't believe they would say that about me. I can't believe they would do that. They made that decision without even thinking to ask me. It's because I'm not the center of the world. I'm not the center of the universe. There's so much emphasis in our world on knowing ourselves. And there's all kinds of tools that you can find to help you know yourself. And and I don't think they're all bad. We use some of them here. Like StrengthsFinder, or maybe you've taken the DISC assessment that tells you, are you a a D or an I or an S or a C? We use one here called Working Genius to help you figure out, hey, how do you work? How do you you thrive? Maybe you've taken Myers-Briggs to figure out which 18 letters of the alphabet you are, or whatever it may be. The Enneagram, it was cool and big for a little while. Not all of those are bad, but none of them, none of them work unless you start with Jesus. You will never know yourself unless you start with Jesus. Until we know ourselves in relation to Jesus Christ, we will never really know who we are. See, knowing Jesus, it shapes the why, the what, and the how of our lives. One of my favorite things to do is premarital counseling. Because it leads to cake at the end of it, right? Uh, But one of the things that, that I try to stress to couples when I'm doing their counseling is that when you get married, everything changes. There are things that you expect to change, and there are things that you don't expect to change. Early on in our marriage, I realized that Anna's family had spent their entire lives eating the wrong brand of ketchup. Right? And so we had to change that. Right? We had to get to the right, the right brand of ketchup, which is Heinz. And so we had it changed. But then there are bigger things that change. Right? There's more to life than just yourself. You spend money differently. You make choices differently. Everything that you do now is in relation to your new husband or your new wife. This is a picture of our relationship with Jesus. Just like John the Baptist, once we meet Jesus, everything changes. Everything about who we are and what we do changes. The who, the what, the how, the why of your life changes. And if your life has not changed significantly and considerably since you met Jesus, it could be that you have not met Jesus. It could be that you do not know Jesus because Jesus loves you too much not to change you. When we come to Jesus, what he says to us is it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And apart from Jesus, I should be honest, none of us are okay. But Jesus changes it. See, it's vital that we recognize who we aren't and realize who we are, and then finally that we remember who Jesus is. This is the fight of the Christian life. The fight of the Christian life is not how to overcome that sin that is hanging on to you. The fight of the Christian life is not figuring out how do you share the gospel with this person or how do you get a heart for evangelism. The fight of the Christian life is remembering who Jesus is. Because when you remember who Jesus is and you see him clearly, then sin becomes less attractive. When you remember who Jesus is and you see him clearly, then living on mission becomes normal. See, when we do this, when we remember who Jesus is and who we are, we, we find this freedom. So in verse 24, John, the apostle, the writer, he jumps in and he narrates for us. He says, now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a small but influential group of religious leaders. They send the priests and the Levites. In verse 25, there's another question. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah the prophet, why are you doing any of this? Why are you baptizing? Understand, baptism wasn't a new thing. In fact, baptism at times was a common practice in Judaism. There are two times that baptism was practiced that we know of. One is that whenever a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, there were two ceremonies or two rites that they would have to engage in. One, they'd be baptized as kind of a ritual cleansing. And the second is the men would be circumcised. But then there was another time, there were different groups, there's one group that we know it was known as the Qumran community, where they would baptize themselves regularly as a picture of the cleansing that they needed before they entered into fellowship or, or into relationship with Yahweh. But, but the more common picture was, for those who were converting to Judaism, they were known as God-fearers. Converts were baptized. And so these, the Pharisees and the priests and Levites, they see John baptizing Jews. And so what they see is John treating Jews as Gentiles, which would have been a big deal. And so they're wondering, who has given you authority to do this? Why are you doing that? And I love what John does. He completely ignores the question. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He doesn't explain the significance of his baptism, though he'll do that later. Instead, he just points them to Jesus. He tells them there's one among them. There's, there's one in the middle of them that they do not know, but they have probably seen, they've probably brushed shoulders with, there's one among them whose sandal John is not worthy to untie because he's the one. He's the Messiah. Now, for John to say the sandal not worthy to untie, this is a big deal. Because what John is saying is that in this time, that a, a student did everything for their teacher, did everything for their master. we Would get their food, would get them water, whatever it may be, except there's one thing that a student didn't do. A student did did not untie the strap of the sandal of their teacher because that job was seen as so low and so menial that only a slave would do it. Only a slave would take the sandal off and wash the feet. John says here, he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm not even worthy to take the sandal off the foot of the one who is coming. That's a job reserved for slaves, and I'm I'm even less than that when compared to him. See, what John is doing is he's literally preparing the way for Jesus with these words. The one who comes after him isn't just a great teacher or a great religious leader. He's greater than all of that. He's saying, you need to understand what you are about to see. You need to understand what you are about to experience. I've been excited all week because pitchers and catchers reported to Major League Baseball teams. Amen. And even better than that, they didn't just report to any baseball team, they reported to God's team, right? The Atlanta Braves. And they, they came to the Braves. But I'm excited, not just because Braves baseball is about to come back and, Lord willing, the Phillies will lose every game they play for eternity. Tell Pastor Josh I said that. Uh, but I'm excited because I've been waiting for this day for over a year. Because Tyler Matzik is back on the mound. Tyler Matzick is my favorite Braves pitcher. I've been talking about him for weeks. People are tired of it. You might not know who Tyler. You might not care about any of this. But I don't care, right? Because I'm excited that he's going to be back on the mound. I pray for Anna. She's tired of hearing me talk about Tyler Matzick. Tyler Matzick. Tyler Matzick. I'm excited. Because people are going to get to experience his greatness. John the Baptist is telling the priest and the Levites that he's excited for them to see Jesus because they're going to experience his glory. They're going to experience his greatness. And so he's telling them, don't worry about who I am. Worry about who Jesus is. Don't worry about who I am. Worry about the one who comes after me. See, this, this should be our posture as well. When we grasp Jesus' greatness, two things happen. One, our lives are changed. Right? We understand who we are because we understand who Jesus really is. There's a second way, there's something else that happens. It's that we point others to him. That's really what this passage is about. It's about mission. That's why if you you look at the title that we put there on the bulletin, it's a vision for mission part two. Pastor Mike preached last week, part one did a great job. This is just a continuation of that that when we experience Jesus' greatness, when we grasp his greatness, we point others to him. When we experience his glory, a life lived on mission does not, Become optional, it becomes natural. It becomes normal. And it becomes normal because we have grasped how wonderful He is. Maybe the reason we struggle to live on mission is because we don't really understand just how wonderful and how glorious Jesus is. If you ask me to talk to you about my wife, I don't need a class or a training on how to do that. Blonde hair the prettiest blue eyes I've ever seen, the most wonderful laugh. Most importantly, she puts up with me, right? If you, if you were to ask my parents about their grandkids, sit down and get comfortable, right? Because they're gonna show you pictures. They're gonna, they're gonna tell you all about them. But why do we struggle to talk about Jesus? We love them. We know him, we we care, but why do we struggle? Maybe it's because we haven't really grasped his glory. We haven't really grasped who he is. But when you grasp the glory of Jesus, it becomes normal and natural to talk about him. What's more, it's not just normal and natural to talk about him, but it's normal and natural to talk to him that we go to him in prayer. Because this one who is so glorious and so wonderful and so matchless, he invites us to talk to him. And then when we grasp his glory, we are compelled to go talk about him. See, there's freedom when we understand who we are and who Jesus is. When we do that, we live as we were meant to live. We live with this lifestyle of repentance, not that we're always beating ourselves up because we can't measure up, but we live a lifestyle of repentance because we recognize that the more of us that we get rid of, the more of Jesus we get to experience. This week, the Lord just kind of prompted me in my prayer time, and I've been praying, Lord, I want you to send revival. Revival to to Central, revival to Sanford, revival to our community. And one of the things that I've been hit with that the, the mark of revival is not passionate singing. The mark of revival is not a full room. The mark of revival is not this or that. The first mark of real spirit-wrought revival is radical repentance of God's people. And if we we want to experience revival, then we need to get serious about repentance but we need to get serious about hating our sin and loving Jesus. And as we do that, then like John, we we'll be compelled to live on mission. And so this morning, as we respond to God's word, as we sing, I think the right response is that we would repent. That right where we are, that we would pray, Lord, show me my sin. God, show me where I need to repent. Show, show me what I don't see. Martin Luther said that repentance is the job of every Christian, that we should be professional repenters. If you think you have nothing to repent of, you're lying, so you need to repent of that. that we always have something to repent of? Father, forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for my arrogance. Forgive me for this. Or, Lord, help me to see my sin. Help me to see what I need to repent of. This is something that, that Christians never stop doing because we recognize that as we repent, we get more of Jesus. This is why in just a couple chapters, John the Baptist will say, he must increase and I must decrease. That's what revival is. I wonder if you've ever repented. Maybe you're hearing you've never repented from your sin. Repentance, it's just a word that means to turn from your sin, to walk the other way. What the Bible tells us is that if you want to gra- experience Jesus, you want to experience his power, you want to grasp who he is, you've got to see your sin for what it is. It's an offense to God. You've got to repent. You've got to let go of your sin. You've got to turn from your sin and trust Christ. And as you trust Christ, he washes you clean. He forgives you of your sin. For every sin that you've ever committed, every sin that you ever will commit, you, you confess it to him. He forgives you. And he grants you, he gives you eternal life. That's what you and I have been invited to experience. By God's grace, that's what can be yours today if you will repent and believe. Trust in Christ, not in John the Baptist, not in yourself, not in me, not, not here, but in Jesus Christ. And so if, you, if you've if you never done that today, we would love to celebrate what the Lord is doing in your heart with you. We would love to come alongside you and pray with you and encourage you and, and walk with you. And so at the Here in just a minute, I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. And then at the end of the service, you'll see people in bright yellow shirts that say hello on them. It says hello on them because they wanna talk to you. It doesn't say hello because it's a cool brand that uh, someone found and gave to us. No, it says hello because I wanna talk to you. Well, what the Lord is doing in your heart and life and, and how we might be able to come alongside you I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And as we sing, maybe we need to repent. Repent just right where you are of a sin that the Lord has brought to your mind. Maybe for the first time, you need to turn from your sin. You need to stop trying to save yourself. And you need to trust Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your grace and mercy. Father, we are grateful for how wonderful you are. And Father, this morning we're we're asking, we're 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 begging that we would we would see Jesus clearly. God, we want to see Jesus because we want to be changed by him. But we want to be conformed into his image. And Father, as we behold Jesus, we want to we wanna grab a vision for the mission that you've called us to. To carry the gospel to those who need to hear it. To be shaped and formed more by Jesus than by anything else. So Father, I pray that would be true of us. Father, I pray for those here this morning, maybe for the first time. They need to let go of trusting themselves and start trusting you. Father, I pray that today would be the day they do it. We pray this and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.